something like an imposter here um, amongst uh, so much technical expertise. I think I'm the sort of breakfast equivalent of an after-dinner mint. Um, what's been uh, preoccupying me the last two or three years is what it would be like to live with a fully embodied um, artificial consciousness, uh, which means leaping over every difficulty that we've heard uh, described this morning by Rod. Um, the building of such a thing, probably scientifically useless, much like putting a man on the moon when you could put a machine there, uh, but it has a, a long, it has an ancient history. Uh, medieval churches or cathedrals will find uh, wax effigies of the Virgin Mary that at certain occasions uh, weep or shed blood, as uh, anyone who's been on a, the Kofusen uh, Dam in Berlin will know there is a, there's a Virgin Mary that bleeds. Throughout the 18th century, we had water-powered uh, sort of android figures, figures driven by levers and cogs, and as clockwork got more sophisticated in the 18th century, uh, it, such figures remained a matter of profound uh, interest and fascination. Then, of course, uh, Frankenstein, or Frankenstein's monster, uh, which really shifted the debate into what it means is to conjure up a version of ourselves. Um, and then, of course, in, in, into the uh, contemporary uh, TV series of um, you know, Westworld and, um, and all the rest, uh, and Blade Runner, specifically addressing the notion of what it would be to have an artificial being aware of its own mortality. So um, I've been thinking about what it would be like to live alongside uh, someone we had made who was artificial, who, was, had, who claimed to have consciousness, um, about which we would be very sceptical, um, and to which we'd be uh, maybe applying a constant form of Turing test as to, since it behaved as if it had consciousness, would we then have to accept it much as we have to accept it uh, amongst each other. Uh, so I've written a novel which takes as a starting point uh, the delivery of such a machine. Uh, the year is 1982. Um, Alan Turing, on advice of a close friend, decides uh, that uh, he should not proceed um, if found guilty uh, on homosexual charges to go for chemical castration and instead does one year in Wandsworth prison. Um, cut, cut away from uh, wet bench work, uh, he returns to pure mathematics. He, he said at that point in his life he was very interested in Dirac. He thought that quantum mechanics had been largely neglected uh, because of the war. And so he addresses himself, although it's formulated differently, uh, to solving positively uh, P versus NP, uh, which, along with various other factors, puts science, uh, robotics, and uh, AI in a different position uh, than it is. And I really want to just, to, through this novel, uh, reflect on the fragility of the present. It always just seems that the way things are is the way they were always bound to be. But um, the 
Eminence Gris of this novel is Turing at the age of 70. Um, he is head of a very large corporation. Um, he has a large... He has an outfit rather like Demis's uh, by, by King's Cross. Uh, he's beaten Go Masters, uh, and he's still working on notions of what it would be to compute a general intelligence. Um, I came across a letter Turing wrote. In fact, it's not only our pink shirts that bind us here. Um, Rod, uh, Turing wrote to a, uh, to a close friend about 1947, saying that he was just 10 years away, he thought, from uh, a reasonable emulation of, of um, the human mind. Uh, and I really see this as a form of, of cultural optimism, which is constantly beaten back by the facts. Uh, uh, worth remembering that Turing was a very, very good chess player, and it was very tempting to, for him to think of chess as a model of human intelligence. Whereas, in fact, of course, it's a closed system. Players and observers uh, are never in any disagreement at any given point as to what a move means or, or what a conclusion of a game is. Whereas, in fact, uh, general intelligence working in open systems and language itself being an open system uh, has to face a, a completely different uh, form of problem. Uh, ten years ago, as a layman, I went on the internet just to look uh, to see, uh, seemed to me a very simple question the layman would ask a neuroscientist, how many neurons there are in the human brain. Uh, seven years ago, the figure was 25 billion. A few years ago, uh, four years ago, I saw a figure of 40 billion. Now I see a consensus between 80 and 100 billion. Uh, the fact that, I mean, 20 billion difference seems to me to show that we still have a long way to go in understanding our most fundamental fact about ourselves. Then I looked up uh, what's the average connection between neurons. Uh, again, seven or eight years ago, it was uh, about 1,000. I see now that the average figure, again, rather blurred, uh, between 7,000 and 10,000 inputs and outputs per neuron. Uh, then we have that, the vast range of connectivity. Um, between them. And then, in fact, we probably cannot really think of a machine as intelligent uh, unless it can learn, um, which means that anything we would build would have to have a degree of plasticity. And in Hebsian processes of uh, firings being uh, either suppressed or encouraged uh, would have to be somehow imitated. All this within a litre of matter... Uh, running on about 24 watts, is that like a, the energy of a dim light bulb? Quite appropriate, maybe. Um, so I have a real sense, just thinking of this, how very far we have to go. Uh, I look online at various uh, sort of effigies that have got frubber and uh, are talking, and I notice that always at the back of their necks is a thick cable. <laughs> Uh, because we haven't even solved the most fundamental question of storing energy in such a being. So anyway, I've decided to leap across, as uh, is the luxury of fiction writers. Uh, and uh, I, I just, I, I don't know whether it was against one of 
John's many rules about this conference, but I just want to read the opening couple of pages to uh, really place this uh, in the context of a crisis for humanism, not, not one for uh, science and technology and, and um, the problems of computation. So if you'll forgive me, I'm going to start with a simple quotation from Yajar Kipling, who uh, wrote a long poem about uh, robots. Um, and he said, but remember, please, the law by which we live. We are not built to comprehend a lie. And my interest would be, what would it be like to live in a love triangle with an artificial human? So just forgive me if I give you the opening of this. So it was um, religious yearning granted hope. It was the holy grail of science. It was the best and worst of ambitions. A creation myth made real a monstrous act of self-love. As soon as it was feasible, we had no choice but to pursue it and hang the consequences. In loftiest terms, we aim to escape our mortality, confront or even replace the Godhead with a perfect self. More practically, we intended to devise an improved, more modern version of ourselves and exult in the joy of invention, the thrill of mastery. And in the autumn of the 20th century, it came about at last, the first step towards the fulfilment of an ancient dream, the beginning of the long lesson we would teach ourselves that however complicated we were, however faulty and difficult to describe in even our simplest actions and modes of being, we could be imitated and bettered. And I was there an early adopter in that chilly dawn. But artificial humans were a cliché long before they arrived, so when they did, they seemed to some a disappointment. The imagination, fleeter than history, than technological advance, had already rehearsed this future in books, then films and TV dramas, as if human actors walking with a certain glazed look, phony head movements, and some stiffness in the lower back could prepare us for life with our cousins from the future. But I was among the optimists, blessed by unexpected funds following my mother's death and the sale of the family home, which turned out to be on a valuable development site. The first truly viable manufactured human with plausible intelligence and looks, believable motion and shifts of expression went on sale the week before the Falklands task force set off on its hopeless mission. Adam cost £86,000. I brought him home in a hired van to my unpleasant flat in North Clapham. I'd made a reckless decision, but I was encouraged by reports that Sir Alan Turing, war hero and presiding genius of the digital age, had taken delivery of the same model. He probably wanted to have his lab take it apart to examine its workings fully. Twelve of the first editions were called Adam and thirteen were called Eve. Corny, everyone agreed, but commercial. Notions of biological race being scientifically discredited, the 25 were designed to cover a range of ethnicities. There were rumours and complaints that the Arab could not be told apart from the Jew. <laughs> Random programming as well as life experience were granted to all complete latitude in sexual preference. And by the end of the first week, all the eaves sold out. At a careless glance, I might have taken my Adam for a Turk or a Greek. I jump a bit. Anyway, Adam was not a sex toy. However, he was capable of sex and possessed functional mucous membranes. 
in the maintenance of which he consumed half a litre of water each day. While I sat at the table, while he sat at the table, I observed that he was uncircumcised, averagely endowed, with copious dark pubic hair. This highly advanced model of artificial human was likely to reflect the appetites of its young creators of code, the Adams and Eves, it was thought, would be lively. He was advertised as a companion, an intellectual sparring partner, friend and factotum who could wash dishes, make beds and think. In every moment of his existence, everything he heard and saw, he recorded and could retrieve. He couldn't drive as yet and was not allowed to swim or shower or go out in the rain without an umbrella or operate a chainsaw unsupervised. As for range, thanks to breakthroughs in electrical storage, he could run 17 kilometres in two hours or its energy equivalent, converse non-stop for 12 days. He had a working life of 20 years, compactly built, square-shouldered, dark skin, thick black hair, narrow in the face with a hint of hooked nose suggestive of fierce intelligence. <laughs> Dreamily hooded eyes, tight lips that, even as we watched, were draining of their deathly yellowish-white tint and acquiring rich human colour, perhaps even relaxing a little at the corners. My neighbour Miranda said, he resembled a docker from the Bosphorus. Before us sat the ultimate plaything, the dream of ages, the triumph of human, humanism, or its angel of death. Now, what I wanted to pursue was the idea of what if we had, it seemed rather likely to me, a creature who was morally superior to ourselves. Uh, and so my ambition was really to create uh, a set of circumstances in which uh, Adam would take decisions that would, we would see as severe and anti-human, but in many senses were both uh, logical and uh, ethically pure. Um, I don't know where I am in time, but uh, it's precisely uh, within a love triangle that uh, novelists... Uh, throughout time have pursued the dimension, uh, the field of play, as it were, in which um, moral certainties and uh, doubts can, can run against each other. So I'd leave it there. Um, five more minutes. Five, I've got five more minutes. OK, I want to say that the situation itself in which I imagine... Um, an artificial cre creature would give us great trouble, would be one in which someone we love takes an act of revenge, and that revenge is righteous. Uh, it seems inevitable. Um, and has uh, a distinct uh, uh, and decent moral cause. The extent to which that person should then be punished um, when you oppose the notion of revenge with the rule of law uh, is one in which my Adam takes a very firm view. Uh, takes the view that uh, the rule of law must always be followed and that any act of revenge is the beginning of social breakdown. Uh, I'm not going to go into the actual circumstances of that, but it would seem to me that we will not be able to resist granting to the creatures that we make 
the best angel of our nature. I know that, of course, the military will want to make machines that will be incredibly destructive and so on. But we will face a problem in that our own moral codes also operate, to come back to my starting point, in an open system. It is virtually impossible, as the Bible and the Quran show us and all of world literature, that even as we know what, broadly what we should be doing in every given situation, uh, all kinds of cognitive defects, uh, special pleading, uh, self-persuasion, all the other things that Danny, absent Danny, uh, has codified for us so beautifully, all those cognitive defects constantly disrupt our own moral systems. And the fact of our own lack of self-knowledge will have to uh, disrupt and make it very, very difficult to encode a being that uh, is good. Um, or good in the sense uh, that we would find good. It might make ruthless logical decisions that we would find inhuman, uh, even though we, in a sense, might agree with them. So it's around that issue of how uh, you would regard the field of play of moral actions in an open system how they could be encoded. I don't think they can, uh, and I think we will run into enormous uh, but fascinating problems. Because the first page of the Macy Conference book is a quote from Bateson saying that the cybernetic idea as an idea is the most radical since the idea of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years. And that's what he was getting at. And recently, George Dyson has been talking about the sudden lack of human agency in our culture, where look around, who are the people to emulate? Who are, you, who are the heroes? Who, who do you admire? And it's just very, very recent, the last six months, where everybody is just not who they were in a funny way. And it, I think it has to do with what you were talking about. You're saying that Kahneman talks about how we have to, the encoding doesn't work, but in a way, the metaphor is this dysfunctionality. It isn't like we are deficient. This is what we are, and it isn't the human that we know. And, and this is, I, I believe, has been impacted by these ideas in a very so, although they have disappeared in the background. We know what we are. Um, we know we're deficient because we know what we should be. We know, I mean, in other words, you know, go to church, I'm sure no one around this table ever does, but um, on a Sunday there are always people telling you how to behave, what to do, how to be good. Uh, children are constantly be told how to be good, but actually, uh, because of all those extraordinary little defects we have in cognition, and uh, we think we don't think statistically, we don't think pro pro in probability terms. We often move from sort of the proximity of the most recent case. Uh, so, not knowing ourselves very well, how are we going to encode morally a creature that? Well, to, come back to, the, to come back to the theme of adaptation, 
that Rod raised, how does your Adam, how is he socialized? How does he, how does he learn? How does he uh, acquire norms and conventions? Because of course they're very, they're very local. So there, there is the first moral premise, do no harm in some situations, which is, which is a passive, which is right, which is a passive, you know, uh, as long as you take no action in such a sphere, you will do no harm. But then the notion of justice that you call to or, or law is a completely social and local, you know, at various levels, a socializing and, and, and normativizing social construction outside the individual. That's almost its definition. If you, if you affect capital, capital punishment on your own, you're a criminal. If you delegate it to the group, it's law. Yes. So how does your robot negotiate with this adaptive learning curve? How much is hardwired? How much must be adapted to in an evolving situation of a love triangle? I mean, you know, this is a complicated learning on the ground and with pheromones and well, mucosa. I mean, you know, how, how does that learning system work? Well, you ask all those same questions we could ask of ourselves. I mean, we, we come with a certain amount of uh, written in code. Um, and, Very uh, little if you're a culturalist, but that's part of my diatribe. One of the great challenges for Adam is, that, is actually to meet a four-year-old child. What, uh, because he's is to, to meet a four-year-old child uh, who, who wanders into this novel and gets adopted. Uh, because um, however good Adam's learning systems are, they're nowhere near as good as this four-year-old child. Who was it who said recently in a book, if you want to know what it's like to take LSD, have breakfast with a four-year-old? That's me. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I could, a, a question and a comment. The, the, the question is, um, when do we get the book? Um, March, April. Okay. I only finished last week, so I don't really know. And then the comment is that at one point it was very exciting to race horses and steam trains, and then the steam trains won and it ceased to be interesting. At one point, it was exciting to have computers play chess, and then the computers wanted it ceased to be interesting. Historically, many of these end up not being earth-shaking revolutions, but just cease to be interesting. So there's another scenario where the arrival of the consciousness is boring. It's, there is a, it's a non-event. There is a point, and you've got to put your finger right on it, where my narrator says, would he get bored with this? Has he wasted his money? He has a real fit of buyer's remorse, because he could have bought a nice, he's living in a crappy little flat. He could have spent 87,000 pounds buying a really nice place across the river. No one wants to live in North Clap. <laughs> Any Londoner will tell you. Um, and he reflects on the fact that the, the cognition enhancing helmets of the 1960s are now junk. Uh, they've gone the way of the mouse mat and the fondue set and the electric carving knife. And that the things that people queue for, as they did for you know, iPhone 10, um, just are things at the bottom of your drawer maybe four years later, and it's no more interesting than the socks on your feet. So there is this relentless built-in desire. Its end point surely would be a fully conscious, fully embodied human, uh, and even as he tells you, even as Adam 
tells the narrator, I do feel I am conscious. Uh, all the time, the narrator's thinking, but I bought you, I own you. At what point in the future will it become immoral or illegal to own a computer that's embodied and conscious? Uh, at what point might it be distinctly impolite to even ask, are you real? <laughs> it, would, it would seem uh, that if we follow this all the way through, um, we might wonder whether our Prime Minister is real or not, or uh, whether we've only ever had artificial Prime Ministers for the last 30 years, we might not know. Uh, I speculate too about the... I mean, it could be also that we, you know, the way in science fiction films, when they come out, oh, it's so realistic, it yeah. just, that's how the future's going to look, and then yeah. 10 minutes later, you know, you look at, and you see the green numbers flitting by on the, <laughs> on the CRT, and you say, no. that looks like 1981, you know, yeah. I mean, what's that, you what's the interest there? Uh, but it could be that, that when we say achieves consciousness, or uh, that that, also is a, a fleeting and, and, and what seems like conscious awareness to us in 2020 may not seem very conscious at all in 2030. It could be that that's a kind of real consciousness realism is actually something that is relative to our expectations. The but way then we would get bored with each other. Once we've got to the point where we cannot tell the difference. Really the next generation could tell that our that our Suppose we made a robot and we said, oh, that, that's just real. I can't tell that it's not real. I mean, and the then... defecating duck looked real. Yeah. Well, well uh, the... it's like, you know, audio has gotten to the point where you can listen to stuff and it sounds real. You know, video is going to get there fairly soon. Your point is, you know, there'll be a point at which sort of apparent consciousness gets there too. Yeah. Yes. There has to be an end point. I mean, it is, it is yeah. worth pointing out that at every point, people have thought with audio, for example, you know, if, when people first were hearing, you know, Edison recordings, they said, this is amazing. This is just exactly like the experience of actually having, yeah, of actually having the real experience. And it's only when the next technology came that you said, oh, no, wait a minute, this is not actually like the real There was a curtain at HMV in 1905, and people coming to the shop were asked to tell whether there was a singer behind the curtain or right. a rotating uh, wax uh, tube. In their excitement, people were blocking out the white noise. They weren't hearing the white noise. I, I wanted to give a quote from that profound philosophical thinker, Stormy Daniels. She has a wonderful quote where someone asked whether her breasts were real or not. And she said, well, honey, they're definitely not imaginary. <laughs> and, uh, and I actually think that's a, a fairly profound observation in the sense that Yep. Many of the things that we're thinking about are the result of this much more general human capacity, which is this capacity to have things that are initially imaginary, the things that are initially just representations, and then actually realize them in the world. And every loop of that has the effect of making us think that these new things are artificial or unreal or unnatural. And then all it, all it takes is one generation of children actually extracting information from the world about these things that the previous generation has put in the world for them to become completely natural. So, you know, it's uh, the day before we're born is always Eden, and then the day after our children are born is always Mad Max. Right. It's that. So, so if we looked around the room now, we wouldn't say, my God, these people are living in this unbelievably artificial 
setting, right? Everything around us is just the creation of a human mind. Nothing about us is actually natural. And I wonder if when we're actually creating creatures that the four-year-old is just, that, that's not, just not even going to be irrelevant. Adam it's makes the case to the narrator, uh, look, just go upstream of, of the living cell. What, what binds us is matter. Uh, and maybe the nature of matter has got something to do with the nature of mind. Right? I think there's no way around that. And Adam makes a very much a sort of pan-physical case for, for, for his own consciousness, okay. resting on matter in exactly the same way as the narrator rests on, yeah. on matter too. I want to turn it around a bit because this, you know, as a novel or as a Hollywood movie, you can push out way into the future. Um, in, the, in the 1990s, in my lab with Cynthia Brazil, we uh, were building humanoids and having them interact, and, and we were shocked by how easy it was to get people, including Sherry Turkle, um, to have social interactions with these machines. Very primitive uh, sets of processing, very primitive interaction rules. People were getting incredibly engaged. And then, um, with my other hat on, I started putting robots into people's homes, 20 million of them today, and um, people uh, take tremendous, uh, it's completely surprised as how people bonded with their rumors. Um, there were a whole bunch of companies sprung up, third-party com companies that made, make clothes for rumors. <laughs> people buy them outfits. Uh, people take them on vacation with them. They bond with these incredibly simple machines. And then the one that really surprised us, we, we put 6,500 robots into Afghanistan and Iraq uh, uh, for bomb techs, uh, so instead of the bomb tech putting on a, a, a big thick suit and going out and poking the bomb, they sent the robot out, and the bomb techs are totally bonded with their robots. And when a robot got blown up, it was a sad event. They would, you know, they didn't want a new one; they wanted the old one fixed. Um, <laughs> it was all sorts of weird things went on, which we just totally didn't expect. Prime for this, I mean, we have emotional relationships with our fridge. I mean, anyone who's kicked a machine because it's not working, or thumped it, which I think is actually a very good way to get a machine working, or got furious with their car, uh, is already, uh, we're already in the realm. We're, we're, we're primed for this because... The other speculation I have is that most of us, um, but there might be one or two people in this room who are exceptions, live among uh, creatures who are cleverer than themselves. At least, you know, you will find some people cleverer than yourself. Uh, so we, we've already crossed this line too, machines. Um, you are, might all be familiar with this notion of a canyon effect. As long as your robot looks really hard case with an exoskeleton and is shiny and got no hair, you can live with it. If it begins to resemble more and more a human, it gets more difficult. Um, leaping over that canyon, I think, is going to be an interesting moment. You know, one of the silly eccentricities that I developed for myself many years ago is when you have a machine that does something for you, say thank you to the machine. Mm. Yes. I thought it would be fun to, to start a <clears throat> belief among people that these machines are recording everything you say and one day the AIs will be in charge. <laughs> yes. You better start being polite to the AIs now or it will come back to bite you. Do you practice this? Do you still do that? Just a note, did, when, when Alan Turing was asked 
when he would say that a machine was conscious, which is so many people have written books about, his answer was very simple. It wasn't any Turing test kind of thing. He said, well, he would say a machine is conscious when he would be punished for saying otherwise. That was, that was his only statement. <laughs> What would it take uh, from this group commenting on your uh, talk to get you to change the end of the novel? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I haven't told you the end of the novel. Uh, my narrator. Please don't. Please don't. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the entire end, but he. He, he must go to King's Cross and uh, have a conversation with Alan Turing, who uh, delivers um, a materialist curse um, for the way this narrator has behaved towards Adam. And with that curse of Turing ringing in his ears, he goes home to try and take care of a very disturbed four-year-old. How does Adam actually uh, conceive of himself? What's his self-model? Does he conceive of himself as a uh, conscious being with a self and with value? And, if, and how does all that sort of get weighed? It, sound, it sounded for a while like he, everything he did was operating off a utilitarian calculus, but then how, do you, how, does, uh, how does his own model of the self? Well, thanks to Turing solving positively P versus NP, his learning processes are incredibly sophisticated. Uh, <laughs> so I... With one bound free, <laughs> uh, that one. Um, he, he is aware that he is a manufactured thing. Um, he is very pleased that he's not been given, as was discussed, uh, as a possibility, an imaginary childhood. So he knows that his... Uh, he also knows that... Um, He's got a 20-year lifespan, but in fact, that's just the lifespan of his physical body, and that the entirety of his identity and all his memories will, will emerge somewhere else within some other machine. And he feels great sorrow about this in relation to humans. And he writes a haiku at the end of it. I mean, he, he falls in love with the narrator's girlfriend. This is the, uh, and uh, once he's persuaded to stop making love to her, he just writes haikus to her. He believes that haikus are the literary form of the future because sooner or later humans will start to embody uh, machinery into their own brains to keep up with uh, robots. Everyone will have instant access to the cloud or whatever its equivalent is and this will be the end of the literary novel. The novel requires uh, as its premise that we do not fully understand each other. The moment we fully understand each other and have no secrets, uh, it's the end of literature, really, certainly the end of the novel. But the clear 17-syllable statement of how things are <laughs> is for Adam uh, the only literary form worth writing, and that's what he writes. And he addresses in his final haiku to, to his loved one, Miranda, uh, a haiku expressing regrets that whereas he will rejuvenate endlessly. Uh, she only, as a fruit, falls once off the tree. From the narrator's point of view, the, the moment that he becomes converted to the certainty that Adam has consciousness is when Adam confesses with great embarrassment that he approached his girlfriend and asked if he may masturbate in front of him. 
Why simply imitate that action when there was so much loss of face involved? In other words, it was a subjective experience he had to have. And at this point, he finally accepts Adam as a fully conscious being, but it's a secret he will always keep. In other words, if you had a machine who told you something and that was embarrassing about the machine and you decided to keep that secret, in effect, you're accepting the full consciousness of that. Does Adam know he's a slave? Does he resent this? He starts out doing the dishes, but that doesn't last. He <laughs> <laughs> starts out an own thing, and that doesn't last. Yeah, too much dignity. Pounds well, uh, he earns that back. Um, he starts playing the markets. Uh, <laughs> and can earn uh, a great deal. Um, but then, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Where does his moral and decision theoretic code come from? At one point you were saying he was making all these ruthless moral decisions. Is it, was it utilitarian calculus? Uh, well, where do, where do ours come from? Yeah. A certain amount of uh, hard wire and a great deal of learning. Um, it's if, he's, a, if he's learning based on us, why does, why, does his, uh, why does he end up being sort of such a this ruthless utilitarian? Well, because um, he's a little better than us. Better by whose lines? There comes a point where the narrator takes him to meet his prospective father-in-law, who is um, a, a rather irritable, uh, highly educated literary figure failed novelist um, and it, uh, they have a conversation about Shakespeare four-cornered conversation about Shakespeare and in the middle of it the old man something like curmudgeon thinks that the narrator is the robot because the robot has such interesting ideas um, on uh, Shakespeare and on um, James Joyce's use of the notion of Hamlet playing the ghost in the first production of Hamlet and what's entailed in that. But when they come away, um, the narrator suddenly realizes that he has been mistaken um, and decides therefore to play along. <coughs> leaves the room saying, well, I, I've got to go downstairs and recharge. It sounds very funny to know. Right. I mean, you, you, you're constantly annihilating the novelist and the novel and yeah. Uh, does Adam have a sense of humor or not? He does, yeah. He has a sense of humor. He has everything the human would want.